Father, thank you for our children, uh, for their teachers, and for their, um, their sweet honor this morning. I am reminded, uh, Lord, that um, you are a teacher. The Holy Spirit of God eliminates the truths of his word, and I pray that, uh, Spirit of God, you would do that again this morning, that I would not be in the way in any way, but just the conduit of your message of grace. As we look to the Olivet Discourse, Lord, help us. Uh, these are uh, tough passages. and some, For some, these are uh, startling things. But I pray that we would learn from it what you would have us to learn. The reason you gave this instruction to your disciples, I pray, Lord, that that would come forward for us uh, right now. So we thank you for your word, that you did not leave us in this world without your spirit or without guidance or without a sense of what was going on, but you revealed yourself to your word through your word and in your son, and you continue to reveal your truths through your Holy Spirit. So we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at uh, the seven woes of Jesus, and you all have come back. So well done, because it was a stinging passage. A set of seven rebukes aimed at Israel's leaders for their hypocrisy, for their self-indulgence, and ultimately for themselves missing the arrival of Jesus the Messiah and then for misleading others to do the same. Uh, This morning we're looking at what is known as the Olivet Discourse. This is in chapter 24 of Matthew where Jesus walks dismissively out of Jerusalem, away from the temple, uh, which prompted a question from his disciples about the signs of the end of the age and of Christ's triumphant return. And so here's the bullet that I would really want you to hear this morning, and that is this, that having been missed in his first coming, Jesus wants to make sure that we are not mistaken about his second coming. And so what is given to us here is to help us with that. Now, rather than giving us a very detailed timeline or a very precise moment or a specific date when he would return, Jesus instead gives us Uh, Only benchmarks and indicators and markers uh, that kind of mark our progress along the way. And I think there probably are many, maybe in this room even, that are kind of disappointed that we didn't get a little more detail or that we didn't get a precise moment and we might be disappointed about not having that. Uh, But to be honest with you, I wonder, I wonder if Jesus had given us the exact date and the exact moment, how ugly our discipleship might actually be. Not knowing the exact moment of our Lord's return calls us to live rightly in this world, to live with faithful tension as we wait longingly for his return, but are also about his business. And so maybe if you might think about it this way, you don't tell your teenager you're going to be home precisely at 1030, right? You tell them sometime between 9 and 11, we'll be home, right? Or maybe sooner, (laughs) You give them a window of time, and you know that that produces for them accountability, right? And I think in the same way, uh, an unspecified timing of the Lord's return is actually gracious of our God, producing in us accountability and better discipleship. Now, there are some views in eschatology. Eschatology means the study of end things. Uh, There are some views in eschatology which speak of the imminence of Christ's return. In other words, that it could be at any moment, at the very next moment, in fact. Uh, But I would say that as we read the Olivet Discourse, 
in chapter 24 of Matthew, I think we would have to conclude that there are some very concrete events that have to happen first. So I'll prepare you for that. And I'm not going to highlight these so that I could create some sense of complacency in us, but rather just to be accurate and looking at the scriptures as they're given to us. We're accountable to the whole counsel of the word of God and certainly not less to the teachings of our Lord. And so he tells us some things about the return of our king. And overall, I think what we're taught here is that we are to be watchful and ready. Not frightened at the days around us, nor complacent about what is occurring. Uh, but rather that we would be diligent in the Lord's service and confident in his return. Uh, so let's look at how Jesus prepares his disciples then and now for his return. Um, in Matthew 24, verse 1, I think the first thing that we'll see that I'll point out is this, that things are going to get worse before they get better. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Uh, well, I brought a couple pictures this morning to kind of help us maybe cast our imagination into what this scene might have looked like while Jesus was uh, giving his instruction here. The first is uh, a picture of, is it coming up? see if I can get it there. There it is. Uh, this is an artist rendering, obviously, uh, from the Mount of Olives, looking over the Kidron Valley, uh, back to Jerusalem, specifically the temple. It's about a mile away. And uh, this particular artist took great pains to actually go to the location, to sit on the Mount of Olives, to get a sense of uh, sort of the lay of the land and the uh, elevations uh, to try to get this to scale, and then took sort of a what was in his mind of sort of an ancient picture of the temple and just sort of painted over the modern landscape. So that's what we have here. And this next one I really like as well. Now, I have to be honest with you, uh, the artist in this one is trying to capture not the Olivet Discourse, but in fact, uh, the triumphant arrival of Christ. Uh, a couple of things that maybe you would notice in light of the text we just read. Uh, there's more, first of all, Jesus is standing, not sitting, little thing. Uh, secondly, there's more than 12 here. So there's a crowd around him. And in this passage, we're told there was, uh, that he talked to his disciples privately. But nevertheless, I, I like just this view of kind of from the mountain, giving instruction about the temple in the background. And so just a couple of pictures for your imagination there as we, as we go along. Uh, I think the disciples' fascination with the temple, and that's really what's going on. That's what begins this whole um, escapade here is they're drawing Jesus' attention to the temple. It's captured their attention. They're in awe of it. It's an awesome sight to behold. And they kind of remind me of our kids, you know, when we travel out of town and go to a big city. You know, if we roll into Los Angeles or Seattle to visit our families or something like that. Our kids are enamored with, oh, the Space Needle and skyscrapers and look, oh, a ferry. And, 
you know, look at that, the Hollywood sign and this and that. And they see these things and it really goes to show you we really live in a remote part of the world, you know. <laughs> the biggest, most impressive building in town is probably our courthouse, you know, four stories high or five, whatever it is. And, um, but in the same way, we're, we're from these, this rural region, so when we see uh, kind of a metropolitan area with big buildings and lights, it, it kind of gets our attention. And so too with the disciples. Uh, they're, after all, mostly from remote regions like Galilee and Jesus himself from Nazareth. And for them to see the temple is awesome. It's impressive just in its stature. But more than that, the temple is actually the jewel in Judaism. Uh, it's not only a magnificent structure, but it's the critical instrument of the practice and expression of their faith. And so it's awesome to behold. It's massive and it retained a place of significance and pride and history and worship that's probably largely lost on the Western mind. So I'm just trying to capture that a little bit. So when Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, this would have been absolutely shocking to the disciples. Uh, Not only would the building itself be destroyed, but by implication, temple Judaism itself would crumble. And so this is a very scary kind of thing that they're hearing. Now, I want to give you a little bit of temple history in case you're not familiar with it. Uh, this is the second temple that we're, that's in view here. But the first temple was completed in 970 BC by Solomon, by King Solomon. And it stood for over 400 years. And as impressive as this one was, King Solomon's temple was even more impressive. But because Israel failed to obey the Lord and because they practiced idolatry and they didn't listen to the prophet's warning, God, through Babylon, came in and essentially judged them and wiped out uh, Israel and destroyed the temple. And we saw this as we looked at the book of Daniel last year, carried off uh, a faction of the people and deported them to Babylon. You remember this is Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, right? Your Sunday school stories are coming back. In fact, we saw the warning or sort of the word of consolation from the prophet Jeremiah as they're being carried off, which is, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Those words weren't spoken to dads and grads, okay, just so you know. They were spoken to a people in the midst of judgment, being carried off to deportation and exile. And it was God's way of reassuring them, I have not abandoned my redemptive plan with you, but I will bring you back. Nevertheless, in front of them was 70 years of exile. After 70 years, Ezra, who we identified as our prophet priest, or our scholar priest, rather, in reading the words of Jeremiah, realized this was only for a 70-year period of time and began to pray that God would, consistent with his word, in fact, bring them back into the land. And through him and through Nehemiah and their leadership, they did bring the people out of exile. They brought them back into the land and they began to rebuild. And they rebuilt the second temple, which is what we kind of had in view here. That was completed in 515 BC, which means that at this moment on the Mount of Olives, as they're talking about the temple, it had stood for 600 years. Our nation is only a couple hundred years old, to put it in perspective, okay? So when this This destruction of the temple that is being predicted here. This isn't just the falling of a building. This brings to mind the apocalyptic judgment that Israel has already been through once before. There is a precedent for this. And that's what's in their minds and in their psyche. 
The idea that this could fall again is apocalyptic to Israel of their way of life and their practice and expression of faith. Uh, So that is important to understand. I remember, just to kind of relate to this a little bit, uh, back in 2001, and I was working at Westside Baptist Church in eastern Washington, and I showed up to work that day, and I had not yet uh, read the news on September 11th, 2001. I had not listened to any news. I just showed up at work, and I walked in the door, and something was different. And my senior pastor, Rick Harple, uh, that day was in his office with the office door open, which was unusual, and a TV on in there, which was highly unusual, and he was sitting on his desk, not his chair. And it was just kind of like, this is weird. Something is off here. And I poked my head and I said, what's going on? And he said, Eric, we're under attack, and we don't yet know from whom. And these buildings have been demolished, or this first one anyways. And he was talking through this thing. And I remember him saying this very clearly. He said, this is very scary, apocalyptic, end of the world kind of stuff. And I thought, oh my goodness. You're supposed to be comforting me and consoling me in these moments, you know. You're supposed to help me have some perspective here. And uh, we watched that unfold. And it was one of those days, right? It was unsettling. We thought, is the way of life as we know it over? And this is the kind of feeling and sense that the disciples would have had as they're sitting on the Mount of Olives on their way to Bethany thinking, Jesus is saying this is all going to crumble. So this isn't a change in conversation when they ask the question, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This is a very natural question consistent with an apocalyptic kind of thing that Jesus uh, has mentioned to them. Now, I want to just pause here and recognize this, a little bit of contemporary relevance, is that it's easy to let this pass by, but notice Jesus was right. What he said would happen, the destruction of the temple, it did. It occurred. And approximately 35 years later, AD 70, the temple was destroyed. And one of the things that this does is it really validates Christ's claim of deity and I, and I think this is, an, I mean, it, while it's a destructive moment, there is an encouragement that's built into it, which shows us that Christ's past prophecies give credibility to his yet-to-come prophecies. And it anchors us. It gives us a sense of confidence because he has a track record of being right. And so now answering their questions about the end of the age and about his return, he begins to answer them, first of all, in the negative Now, I really want your attention on this. Please catch this, because I think many Christians fail to grasp this point in their understanding of the end times and how certain events and signs point to it. In other words, Jesus seems to answer their question by basically saying, what won't be the signs? He begins to answer in the negative. Uh, He starts his, he kind of brackets this whole conversation with the, the caution, see that nobody deceives you. And then he begins to describe the things that will occur on earth due to sin and entropy in the intervening time between his departure and his return. So three things here. If you're taking notes, you're going to have to write quickly. But he tells us that many will try to mislead. That this is the natural unfolding of human history. That there will be human disasters. He talks about wars and rumors of wars and conflict, right? Nation against nation. And then he says, there will be natural disasters. There will be famine and earthquakes and these such things. 
What I want you to recognize is that while he lists these out, he kind of references them in dismissive fashion. In other words, the thrust of his teaching is that these are not the things that indicate the imminent arrival or return of our Lord. These are the things that simply unfold in human history. Uh, And so it's always strange to me that when we have an increase in earthquakes or natural disasters or hurricanes lined up off the coast or famines or wars or the threats of wars, uh, that many well-meaning Christians begin to ramp up the end time speculation talk. Have you noticed this? When it seems to me that Jesus' whole point in referencing these things is simply to say, these things will happen, but they're not the primary signs of the end of the age. It's just the way human history is going to go. It's just the way this world, full of sin, affected by entropy, is going to continue to wobble until the real signs emerge. Notice there are four statements in this paragraph where Jesus kind of tries to diminish these as factors Uh, primary factors of the end times. He says, uh, watch out that no one deceives you. There's one. For many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. That's two. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. That's three. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. And that's the fourth. In other words, I think he's putting these down as just don't let these alarm you. These are going to happen. And they're going to bear out. They're going to be evidence that our Lord knows the trajectory we're on. But they are, if I could call them this, they're the Braxton Hicks birth pains. Okay? The nervous mother who runs to the hospital four times before labor is really upon. Uh, and that's kind of what these are. They, they do confirm a coming event. They do let us know that we're on that trajectory, but they themselves are not the catalytic uh, factors. In fact, it seems to me that the scriptures kind of prepare us for that uh, very pressing moment. They prepare us by showing us that it's not maybe a season of turmoil, but it actually seems to be in a season of peace and safety when some of these events will actually tip over the edge. Look at 1 Thessalonians with me, chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5.1. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Thessalonians who are concerned because false teachers have come into the church and said, you guys missed it. Day of the Lord happened. It was great. You missed it, right? And basically, Paul's giving them assurance and comfort about this. He says this, 1 Thessalonians 5.1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them, suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. In other words, I think to kind of summarize this first section, what we see here is is Jesus is saying, yeah, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's the nature of sin. That's the nature of entropy in this world. Human history will be filled with some awful things, but they're not the immediate signs of the end of the age or of the Lord's return. That's just the way history is going to unfold. Or that's just the way the world is going to wobble. 
okay? Seems to me to be what he's saying there. And then he goes on to give us some more clear signs of progress. He says there will be wide-scale apostasy. Apostasy. What is that? What's apostasy? It is not an Italian dish, even though it sounds like it, right? Apostasy means a turning away from the faith or a turning away from the Lord. Verse 9. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So again, it seems that Jesus here predicts this large-scale falling away from the faith And it seems to me that it's brought on by persecution, that that's a big trigger for what what happens here. So again, humbly, I would just say that I think the first eight verses, really, we find a description of the general course of human history. But as we move into the second section, I think we could actually look around us today and see, yeah, some of these things are actually underway and maybe even increasing. In other words, we do see an increasing amount of persecution and martyrdom. Consider the emergence of ISIS in the past couple of years, right? Specifically targeting Christians for persecution and for uh, execution, and specifically doing it to bring on the apocalypse. That's their whole motivation, which makes them a tough enemy to fight. But we have all seen these fellow Christians dressed in orange suits and hooded, and made to kneel in preparation for execution. We have seen that in our lifetime, right? In just the last few years. And while this is a vivid and dramatic example of such persecution and martyrdom, we also see that there's been a steady increase over the past few years. In fact, Christianity Today released a study just this year that says 2017 was the third consecutive year of all-time high persecution for Christians. All-time high, third consecutive year. That's significant. And they had noted that there really are two common causes or sources from this. One is Islamic extremism. And the other one, which is sort of a new player uh, in the world or or in, in modern times, is actually ethnic nationalism. And these two things are combining to create some of the the most rampant persecution for Christians in history for three consecutive years. So we do see this. We do see an increase of persecution. Secondly, we do see, I think, wide-scale rejection of the faith. Uh, Think about this in Europe. Europe has uh, has existed as a post-Christian region for the past decades, right? And the Czech Republic, where we have missionaries, we heard from the Strocks a few weeks back, and where we also sent our youth missions team for the last three summers. The percentage of Christians in the Czech Republic is less than 1%. Uh, in Ethiopia, where Kim and Sarah are leaving, they're leaving tonight from the airport to head to Ethiopia to give attention to our child sponsorship program, less than 10% Christians. Uh, in Iraq, 0.17%. These are not other people. These are our people who serve our God, who represent you in the gospel there. And there is this wide-scale rejection of the faith. 
And I think additionally, we're beginning to see decline in Christianity, not just abroad, but we're starting to see it at home domestically, particularly in the mainline churches. You maybe have heard of this, but churches like, you know, Methodists and Lutherans and Episcopals, these churches are absolutely in a free fall, closing their doors rapidly. Uh, Evangelical churches like we are, churches that are primarily for the gospel and not sort of trapped by other social issues and whatnot, uh, are actually holding pretty strong still uh, stateside. Uh, there's been some decline, uh, maybe 2-3%, but overall they're doing pretty well. But I would say this, that even in uh, good evangelical churches, I think there is still a decline in the church's purity overall. In other words, I would say in who they ordain, in what they teach, or what they choose not to teach and ignore, or what they tolerate, I think it is especially alarming, in fact, that some of the fastest growing churches in the nation uh, are heterodox. That is, they don't square with the consistent teaching of Scripture. And those are some of the fastest growing churches and movements stateside. Uh, In fact, one movement that we've cautioned you about is the New Apostolic Reformation. And we have something of a resident scholar here. Not something of, we have a resident scholar here, Holly Pivik, who has co-authored two books with Dove Guyvet that expose this and the dangers of this particular movement. It's also called Network Christianity. And I would uh, caution you about that. And so that kind of brings us to the next point, which is that we will also see many deceived Uh, by false prophets. And I think the movement that I just mentioned is one of those cases because it is built and based on false prophets. Islam itself is built around a false prophet and Mormonism and many other kinds of of, uh, these sort of movements. In fact, I think even culturally, we see an ethic around us right now which basically says that a good person in our culture will embrace any and every religion even if they're a direct opposition to one another. Right? Right? And this is getting pounded away at you in your place of education or in your place of work. In fact, the way I would frame it is this. In the name of tolerance, we are asked to offend our God so that we will not offend anyone around us. And that is the way that it is today. So as you can see, the emergence of these false prophets and the misleading of many, this is well underway. This is happening. And I think this whole cultural ethic of tolerance in our culture is feeding this, even here at home. Another description we see is this weakened devotion of believers, or the phrase, the love of most or of many will grow cold. Uh, Now this one's a little harder to quantify, isn't it? Because this is more of a heart issue. It's harder to judge. But I would say this, one metric of a significant study done recently by the Pew Research uh, folks indicates that for the first time in recorded history, For the first time in recorded history in the United States, less than 50% of Americans identify as Christians. That number uh, down to 47%. And if you're talking about evangelical Christians, it drops lower to something like less than 29%. That's one way of looking at it. Another way, and this one might be even more alarming, is this. There was a study done, again, by that same organization, Pew Research, in 2007, And they surveyed 35,000 respondents. They found at that time in 2007 that 16% of Americans claimed no religious affiliation or what they have called nuns, okay? Not nuns like with the habit, but no religious affiliation, answering none. In 2015, that same study was done again. And that number in just eight years had grown to 23%. 
or one in four. It went up 8%, almost 1% a year. Um, We also see that Islam is the world's fastest growing religion and it's on pace to outnumber Christianity in probably just a couple decades, if that. So we see these things. We, We see this happening, I think, in our midst. But the emergence of these events, I would say again, themselves do not indicate the immediate end of the age or the certainty of the very near return of Christ. What they do show us is that we are on the road to the destination that our Lord set out. They corroborate his predictions, his prophecies. What he said would occur is in fact occurring. We're seeing those landmarks. It's like when you drive from Anchorage and you come home to Fairbanks. You start to see those familiar landmarks along the way and you know you're getting close. And then there's just a couple few that are really concrete as you roll into town. And I think that's kind of the way this lays out. But it seems to me that it's when we get to verses 14 and 15 that we begin to see those telltale signs that the end of the age has come. And we kind of begin to glimpse the events that will actually trigger the Lord's return. And so that's our third point this morning. Some concrete events must happen first. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Well, again, this is when we start to see some of the concrete markers of the end of the age and the Lord's return. And the first one that is given, I think, is that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached universally. Now, on the one hand, we might be able to say, Boy, we see this kind of within grasp, maybe is the right way to put it. Uh, There is one organization, and I've given you the study at the bottom. It's Joshua Ministries, which is an outfit of frontiers. And they've calculated that one-third of the world is still considered an unreached people group by their definition. I'm not sure what Jesus' definition is in contrast to theirs, but they still indicate that there's a third of the world that is not yet reached. But... We see a lot of things in our day and age that indicate, boy, this could happen maybe kind of rapidly, such as globalization, the internet, satellites, new mass media options, efforts like the Jesus film that was pretty successful, uh, ever-increasing number of scriptures translated into other people's first languages, entrance into previously closed and communistic countries, the focus of missions agencies on unreached people groups, particularly in the 1040 window. We're seeing movements towards a global witness of the kingdom of God, as has been predicted here. Uh, Then there's another very specific and concrete event here, and it is called the abomination of desolation. And I would uh, have you look at two passages. Uh, One is Daniel 11, 31, and the other is Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. And basically what we have here is the description 
of a leader that emerges who is known as the man of lawlessness, or also known as the Antichrist. And he is one who will make an end to Jewish sacrifices in the temple and set himself up to be worshipped as God in God's temple. So let me give you those passages and then I'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, In Daniel 11.31, he prophesies, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until... The rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Uh, Actually, that was Thessalonians. And then in Daniel 11, we find his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have, been viola- who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. I think also something that's notable here is the word that Jesus uses for the temple in Matthew. And the same word is the same word that Paul uses in Thessalonians. The Greek word is naos. And it means the holy place. Not just the site, but the holy place. And all of this leads to a point here, which is this. It seems to me that in order for this abomination of desolation to occur in the place that is indicated, there has to actually be the rebuilding of a literal temple. Do you see that? The prerequisite of the abomination of desolation is the rebuilding of a literal temple. So let me ask you this. How long do you think that will take? Let me put it to you in some very uh, pedestrian Alaskan terms here. Uh, How long does it take to remodel a room in your own home? A little bit. Uh, How long does it take to uh, build or rebuild uh, a house in Fairbanks? It depends, right, on a lot of things. How long does it take for a church to get on with its expansion project in Fairbanks, Alaska? Uh, We were talking about it when I arrived here more than 15 years ago. And by God's grace, we're going to break ground this summer to let you know about that. How long does it take? This one comes really close to home for me. How long does it take for DOT to build the road project on Yankovic? (laughs) The answer to date, 34 years. Slated for 2020. We'll see. Could be longer. So now let me come back to our question. How long will it take to build a temple in the Middle East on a property that is in disputed ownership between Judaism and Islam, whose site is presently occupied by the Dome of the Rock. And not only must the temple be rebuilt, but the practices of Judaism and offering sacrifices restored. You you can see where I'm going with this. I think the answer to a lot of these things is, I think the lesson for you and me is, we're probably going to be here for a while, Christian. Okay? Okay? We probably are going to be here for a while and probably have a lot yet to go through. And I bring this up because I find that among a lot of conservative Christians today, they seem to have what I would call short-timers disease. They've kind of gone into bunker mode. You know what I mean? They anticipate the very near end of the age. They seem to feel as though the world has gone to pot, quite literally, here in Fairbanks recently. 
They think the return of the Lord will be imminent, and instead of getting busy with the mission of God, they seem to have become grouchy and disengaged with furrowed eyebrows and crossed arms, content to yell at young punks everywhere, get off my lawn, right? That seems to me to be the demeanor of a lot of Christians today in light of all of the things that are happening around us. Anxious, upset, frustrated, But instead of it motivating them to get on with the business of God and to being those who are heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we seem to have retreated into bunker mode. What is the right response to Jesus' teaching here? A couple of things. First of all, I think there's just the recognition of the season that we're in. He means to give us some benchmarks so that we can see where we are to know the course of things as they're unfolding. Secondly, he doesn't want us to be alarmed by the natural course of history like hurricanes and fires and earthquakes and other disasters and sins. Uh, These things will happen. I think the message to a Christian is kind of, if I can put it this way, put on your big boy pants and toughen up a little bit. These things are going to happen. Don't be shocked. Don't be scared. And the third one is this. Be ready. Be watching. Because this is important, even though it may be a ways off yet, or even a long ways off yet. When the Lord returns, and when it is the end of the age, it will feel sudden. It will. Uh, I remember when uh, Amy and I had our first baby, Aiden, uh, 15 years ago. He's learning to drive now. It's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Uh, Even though I had been nine months of gestation, and preparing. We went into the hospital as a couple, and we walked out as a family. And that moment was surreal. We had been waiting. We had been preparing. We had the nursery set. We had done all the things we were supposed to do. But when our baby arrived, it was shockingly sudden. Everything was now different. As much preparation as we had tried to to do. And I think that's the same point that Christians are meant to get, to, to get here, which is that even though there has been 2,000 years of gestation, if I can call it that, it will still feel remarkably sudden when our Lord returns in power. Everything will change as we know it. And so I think the application for us is this. We need to be strategizing for the long term as well. We need to be ready for the quick return, but we need to be strategizing and ready to be here for the long haul. And it seems to me that the very real threats which Jesus cautions about is not that we would miss the Lord return, you know, as though it would show up in our newsfeed or something. Hey, Jesus came back. You guys missed it. You know, really? How did that happen? It's not that. It's it's that the real threats that Jesus seems to warn about here are the threats of persecution and apathy and apostasy and growing cold spiritually, or even just growing bored. It's the, the, there's, a, I think, some very clear prerequisites that must happen. The one is the rebuilding of the temple. Another prerequisite is the revealing of the man of lawlessness. And we see this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 and 4. I'll read this quickly for you and move along. 
But it says, do not become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. I have to pause there and just say, notice how quickly the apostle Paul demotes him, right? The man of lawlessness, huge threat, but he quickly says, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So the rebuilding of the temple, uh, the revealing of the man of lawlessness, and then we see that the result of these things seems to bring on a wide-scale suffering and many false Christs. But all in all, I think what you can see by this is that boy, we're just not quite there yet. We don't see the temple rebuilt. We don't see worship temple worship restored. We don't see the man of lawlessness yet revealed. We don't see the abomination of desolation in the immediate future. And so again, I think the lesson for all of us is we need to dig in for the long haul. We need to be faithful ambassadors where God has placed us, to our families and to our neighbors and to our place of business, thoroughly evangelical for the gospel. We need to learn to love God passionately so that the gospel message on our lips is corroborated by our life. I think the reality is this, that our personal mortality and that of your neighbor, the one sitting next to you, is probably a more pressing reality than the arrival of the end of the age. By God's grace, maybe I have 40 or 50 years left on earth. But I also may not make it home today on these roads. And that should press me in my discipleship and in my evangelism to others. Finally here, Christ's return will be unmistakable. Verse 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Well, a couple of things very quickly here. First of all, he tells us, you're not going to have to look for him. This isn't going to be a, a, a secret search of some covert event. It will be unmistakable, right? And then secondly, he will come in power and glory. We are accustomed to thinking about Jesus, especially our world is accustomed to thinking about Jesus as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. 
Unless, of course, you were here last week and you listened to the woes. But here we see Christ coming back in power and glory and splendor and ready to rule. This is no trifle figure. This is the king. And then thirdly, we see that some of the most clear signs will actually be in the heavens. And I think this is fascinating because there are plenty of false signs, false Christs, charlatans, hucksters, tricksters with sleight of hand type of efforts to convince people that there's something legitimate. But this passage tells us that the most telling signs might actually be or will actually be celestial. They'll be beyond the manipulation of mankind. Another thing that's a little interesting in this passage is that it shows how the arrival will bring about mixed reactions or in fact the world largely will mourn. Did you notice that? Um, If you look at the phrase day of the Lord, this could be a really great study for you in your personal devotion. Throughout the scriptures, it is sometimes referred to as this great thing to look forward to and other times it is portrayed as this dark time and we're told not to look forward to it. We're kind of told both throughout the scriptures. And the reality is this. Overall, it is a day of reckoning. While it produces joy and relief and homecoming for Christians who have found refuge in Christ, it is also the day when rebels learn that they were wrong to reject Jesus and that judgment awaits. That's why it's mixed. Finally, This generation, the generation who sees these signs will see the return of the king. That phrase there, this generation, I think has been really misleading for people. Many feeling like when he says this generation that Jesus had in view those who were sitting around him as though the return of the Lord was going to happen in their time and in their day. But we can see as we look at this passage more carefully, the whole thing starts in verse 23 with at that time. The whole passage is looking forward, uh, looking ahead. And so I think the way we need to read this is for those who see these very concrete signs, the generation that sees those signs will see them consummated in the return of the king. That generation will see. Uh, So I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. And so overall, I think what we need to hear is this. Even though there are these Braxton Hicks labor pains all around us, if I can call them that, even though there are early signs of delivery, even though there are escalating contractions, this generation that sees these particular concrete signs are the ones that will see them culminate in the arrival of our Lord. That time will be when, if I can keep the illustration going, the baby has dropped. Cervix is dilated. Contractions are right upon one another. And it's at that ordained moment that our Lord will be pressed from the heavens to reign in power and glory and splendor. And we long for that day. Would you pray with me? Our Father, there's a lot here in this passage. And we know that we probably have created more questions than provided answers. But I pray, Lord, that we would get the tenor and the sense of this passage and why you gave it. Not so that we would be alarmed or scared. Not so that we could fold our arms and go into bunker mode and wait for that precise day. But you told us so that we would be assured and strengthened and encouraged even as the world wobbles around us. You told us so that we would recognize you and not the charlatans who come and pose as you. And you told us these things so that we might be busy about your business as your ambassadors sharing the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
So Lord, draw us more closely in our own discipleship to you. And may we be more thoroughly evangelical. May the gospel be on our lips for those who could be saved by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.